This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flint. Well, Margaret, we're seeing a number of veteran members of Congress choosing to leave Capitol Hill at the end of their terms. We're losing some real champions of healthcare reform with these announced departures. 87-year-old Michigan Democrat John Dingell is stepping down at the end of his term after close to 60 years in Congress. He has been a champion of healthcare for all Americans. He was there when Medicare was created back in the 60s. Also, just an incredible advocate for children's health care and drug safety. And of course, he was prominent in supporting the Affordable Care Act. It is amazing to think that he was started Congress seven years before the president was born. He's had a lifetime of service. And it makes sense, uh, Margaret, that he was an advocate for universal health insurance from the beginning of a service as far back as 1955 and has worked tirelessly on behalf of Americans throughout his career. Well, he's definitely one of the legendary characters of the Congress, and he follows a host of other veteran lawmakers who cite the current climate in Congress as unworkable and unfair to the American people, as well as an impetus to move on. But in this particular case, Congressman Dingell says he simply wants to enjoy his remaining years at a more relaxed pace surrounded by his family. It'll be difficult to adequately calculate his enormous contribution and service, I think, Mark, to the American people. Mm -hmm. And just a few weeks ago, another highly respected long-term veteran of Congress also announced a departure at his end of his term. Henry Waxman of California stepping down after almost 40 years of Congress. He too has been a career long advocate for health care rights for all Americans. He does uh, point to the partisan bickering and the gridlock as the primary reason for not seeking to run for reelection. You know, it's really just a shame to lose two career statesmen who understand the needs of the American people and fought for them uh, with integrity. Well, both are leaving Congress with the Affordable Care Act intact. Uh, it's been a law based on good intentions and good policy, Mark, but still has left many confused. Our guest today is here to talk about an initiative to help shed more light on the health care law and particularly for those in the health care professions. Dr. Darshak Sangavi is Managing Director of Economic Studies at the Engelberg Center for Healthcare at the Brookings Institution. They've launched a campaign in conjunction with the free online learning service Khan Academy to produce a series of videos aimed at educating medical professionals as well as the public uh, on some of the basic aspects of the health care law in America and how the Affordable Care Act might impact them. And Lori Robertson checks in from factcheck.org looking at false claims about health policy spoken in the public domain. Yes, they still happen. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please contact us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. We'll get to our interview with Darshak Sangavi in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The healthcare law and health premiums. According to a report from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, insurance premiums could rise for 11 million small business employees under the Affordable Care Act, while lowering premiums for another 6 million Americans. It's based on the provision that premiums can no longer be set based on a person's age or pre-existing conditions. So younger folks that are healthier will likely find themselves paying a little bit higher premiums, while older workers will be paying lower than what they did before. Also, the report doesn't analyze the countering effect that small businesses will be able to offset health cost increases with tax subsidies. 
Meanwhile, health insurers were swimming in some positive territory on Wall Street last week after assessing that government cuts to privately run Medicare programs would come in lower than original projections for 2015. Analysts had been expecting cuts of 7% or more to Medicare Advantage plans, but it looks like it's closer to 3.5%. Humana, United Healthcare, and Aetna were all up significantly over the news. Meanwhile, working out the glitches on the state-based health exchanges, California's exchange covered California, was down for five days due to software problems causing frustrations and delays for navigators and insurance pros across the state. They've been averaging 7,000 signups per day in California. And a state with an entirely different sort of exchange experience is taking its show on the road. Connecticut's exchange launched with few of those major problems plaguing the other health insurance exchanges. They've signed up close to 60,000 residents for health coverage, far ahead of the 33,000 they were projecting by the end of open enrollment. Access Health CT President Kevin Cunahan, who had experience in Massachusetts and California before taking over the Connecticut exchange, has put together a program to take to states consistently setting up their own exchanges in the next few years. Cunahan saying they will license the state's technology and essentially sell it as exchange in a box, taking the guesswork out of the equation for those getting into setting up their own exchanges. Connecticut is already talking to several states who've expressed interest. And it's a known fact that when older folks fall, costly medical interventions often follow. A recent study out shows certain antihypertension medications led to a 30 to 40 percent increase in falls, resulting in trauma in folks over 70 who were taking those meds, research suggesting there needs to be more attention paid to the downfall, literally, of stroke prevention medications. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Darshak Sanghavi, Managing Director of the Engelbert Center for Healthcare Reform at the Brookings Institution, where he's also the Merkin Fellow for Finance Reform and Clinical Leadership. Dr. Sanghavi is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and the former Chief of Pediatric Cardiology at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Dr. Sanghavi is an award-winning medical educator and has been a frequent contributor to NBC and NPR's All Things Considered. He writes on healthcare reform for the New York Times, Slate, and Washington Post. His bestseller, A Map of uh, Childs, was named the best book of the year uh, by the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Dr. Sanghavi earned his MD at John Hopkins and completed his residency at Harvard Medical School. Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Hi, it's great to be with you. You know, we hear all the time uh, from people about how complicated and confusing the reforms are within the healthcare law. And the Brookings Institution initiated a program to help people better understand exactly what these health reforms really mean and how they can participate in the process of improving healthcare. And you recently assembled a number of clinicians, health professionals, and journalists uh, at a forum at the Brookings to discuss reform and its many complexities. It sounds like there's still a great deal of confusion in the medical community about the rules governing payment reform, the new delivery models being brought about by the Affordable Care Act. So can you give our listeners an idea on how systemic that confusion is uh, within the medical community and, and how deep does the uncertainty go 
regarding the ACA's impact on the medical profession? Sure. So, I mean, I think that as one of the panelists said at our event, clinicians are confused because healthcare reform is confusing. <laughs> so it's a complex topic, to be honest. And as a result, so a lot of clinicians just are as much in the dark as ordinary Americans are. And in fact, you know, several surveys have shown that that this confusion really starts even early in their careers. Many medical students and residents are never really taught the basics of how, you know, insurance works or what Medicare really is and how it works and how Medicaid works. And instead, they really just focus on the clinical work. Even though as we go on in our careers, we realize that health insurance and the ways in which we pay for medical care powerfully influence not only our lives as clinicians, but also the lives of our patients a great deal. So, so I think this is, a, this is a complicated problem that's been present for quite a while. And, um, and I think that one of the things I'd like to start with is that, you know, if you told somebody about the Affordable Care Act and told them that only about 20% of it really deals with health insurance reform, mm-hmm. 80% of it really deals with health care delivery reform and changing how we pay for care and sort of reorganizing how we deliver to make it better, most people would be really surprised to hear that. And that's sort of what we're trying to, to bring to light and trying to do it in a way that's a little bit more innovative kind of talks to clinicians in a way they can understand, which is, to be honest, the same way you talk to anybody who's trying to understand this stuff. I want to uh, come back to that in a few minutes, but I know that one of the reasons that you assembled that recent panel at the Brookings Institution was to examine ways to empower the clinician community to become both more aware of just what the reform changes are, but you also looked at some emerging tools that you've identified as potentially empowering to healthcare professionals in their engagement in the reform process. And using social media and maybe using the MOOCs, those massive open online courses that have uh, so wildly gained in popularity around the globe. Tell us about the initiative that you've launched at Brookings to expand access to these and other tools for clinicians who are really working to understand these very real changes under healthcare reform. As a physician now, I, I still think back to those days where I sat in darkened lecture halls in the bowels of our medical school building in Baltimore, you know, for, for hours every day, sort of mushroom-like and, you know, listen to people drone on and on. And I, I, I think that almost uh, uniformly among many clinicians of, of a certain generation, you really realize that that was not an effective way to lead to durable, long-lasting education. Thinking back to how we learned, we really learned by watching people do things, taking the time to explain it to us one-on-one. And that's really the model that's effective not only in medical education, but in so many other areas as well. And so our thought was, well, you know, these this is, to some extent, not really rocket science, but how can we harness this type of education to teach people about healthcare reform? And, and one of the things we realized is that clinicians today, they want to learn on their own time. Uh, they want to learn flexibly. They want to learn in small bites. And they want to learn through cases and through stuff that's actually practical to them, delivered in a way they can understand. And when we surveyed the landscape, if you look at how we typically describe health reform, they're in these kind of slump, somewhat obscure journals, and it's written in a way that's very alienating. It presumes that you already understand all the stuff about the 10 titles of the Affordable Care Act, and you know what a medical home is, and so forth. And so we decided to sort of scale that down to a more basic level, and then create a stepwise progression. And so what we were most excited about, first of all, was a partnership that we launched with 
the Khan Academy, which is really um, a terrific organization based in California, started by a young man who works in the finance industry trying to figure out how to teach math to his nieces. And he created these online tutorials that are very simple. You know, start with addition, subtraction, you know, they're five-minute tutorials, but then stepwise work up to doing multivariable calculus. And we thought that's a really good model for how we should teach healthcare. You know, we want to explain, well, what is, what is Medicare? What's Medicaid? And then stepwise work our way up to how exactly do you calculate calculate a bundle for a payment and and look at how do you transform a larger system practice. And so we partnered with the Khan Academy to create these stepwise tutorials, again, starting very basically. Clinicians can learn on their own time in these small little bites and work their way up. And just last week, our first set of tutorials just went live. Well, let me just say, as a parent of an 11-year-old who's (laughs) homeschooling, Salman Khan's work uh, is really just extraordinary. You know, starting back in 2006 when he created this with a mission to provide world-class education to anyone everywhere. So uh, I want you to pull a little of a thread on that because, you know, it's, it's so amazing to us. Still, even in the health profession, they get Medicare and Medicaid confused all the time. I, I am shocked by it, but it is a reality. And if we don't address it up front, this is going to be a real problem. So tell us a little more about that work with the Khan Academy. I take it it's also something that's available for just people, lay people who are interested in the process of understanding this better, as well as the health professions. That's right. So, so to be clear, anybody can log on. Uh, you can go right now to the ConAcademy.org website, click on Learn, and then Partner Content. Go to Brookings Institution, and anybody can see these tutorials. And and we've just really started off on a pretty uh, straightforward way of just kind of explaining the basics of the healthcare system. So we currently, what we did was we developed around um, ten videos, each one lasting about 15 minutes or so, that starts with saying, well, what is the healthcare system? How does it work? Uh, What is Medicare? What is Medicaid? What's up with private health insurance? And so on. And so once our learners, potentially, whether they're clinicians, the general public, they get that material, then there's also um, sort of self-guided exercise. You can sort of answer these quiz questions, and it gives you a hint if you get stuff wrong. And then the next pack of tutorials we're going to deliver are, what is healthcare delivery reform? And again, it's one of our uh, favorite panelists uh, joked at our event last week, when most people think about delivery reform, they wonder about the, what the postal service is doing on Saturdays. <laughs> you know, they don't really, even just that term delivery reform doesn't really mean a lot to people. Mm-hmm. But the next package tutorials is going to explain, well, what is a bundled payment? What is this thing we call a medical home? What is pay for performance and so forth? So that's sort of the idea behind these tutorials. You know, again, thinking back to uh, all those titles of the Affordable Care Act, as you said, the coverage is just a small piece, and then you uh, talked more about some of the payment reform. But there's a few other titles that we have found our healthcare providers to be particularly interested in, too. Uh, certainly the, the title that deals with public health and prevention, and also the title dealing with workforce. And I wonder if you've found this as well in your conversations, that people are really interested not just in what happens within our domain of the delivery of care to individuals, but what happens in the world of prevention and public health, and how are we going to use health reform to train the next generation? I wonder if you have any comments on that. Right. Well, I think broadly there's a couple of threads to the comments you're making. The first is, well, how do we explain what this law is to the to the broader public? And I do think that the law tries to do so many different things in so many different ways that 
you know, as a policy enthusiast, one can't help but marvel at how much was packed into right. it. But at the same time, as somebody who's trying to garner political support, you know, create consensus and get people interested in it, it's really a double-edged sword because because it's so complicated, you can't really explain what it does, to be honest, very easily. That obviously works against the law. And I think we can see this, this tension being played out nationally where people develop very, very strong feelings about the law, whereas at the same time, they may not even have that deep and understanding of what the law actually does. But getting to that, you know, hypothetically, if we put that to the side and focus on how do we talk about these workforce changes and as well as the public health changes, um, I think that there's a great deal of opportunity. We would try to make this narrative. We think that people learn through stories um, uh, and we would try to think of ways either through our Khan Academy platform or through some of our other work of trying to make this work very personal. So with population health, for example, um, there's clearly a lot of uh, uh, stuff in the Affordable Care Act about um, improved nutrition. Um, you know, there's calorie labeling of menus to really deal with obesity and then sort of building a frame around that to say, well, how can the Affordable Care Act be used to look at population health? You know, that might be the simple way, and then you build it out because through the founding of the Innovation Center, they do have a population health uh, um, uh, entire area that's building around that. Maybe we'd get there as well, and even community-based ACOs. So there is a way to get there, but I think that we're starting at such a low bar in terms of public <laughs> knowledge that I think that we should focus maybe on the stuff that's a little easier and then build out from that. We're speaking today with Dr. Darshak uh, Sanghavi, uh, Managing Director of the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform at the Brookings Institution, where he's also the Merkin Fellow for Finance Reform and clinical leadership. Dr. Sangavi is a regular contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, and numerous other. You know, you mentioned just a moment ago that we learn from stories, and it seems also true that we share through social media, which is playing a big role in the empowerment of medical professionals as well as uh, the patient community. But it's an area that's also fraught with proprietary concerns when looking to protect the interest of patient privacy. Uh, where do you see social media playing the biggest role in empowering frontline clinicians in their patient populations? Well, I think that um, to begin with, with the issues around patient privacy, when we talk about social media, it's important to explain that when people talk about patient privacy, that's sort of a proxy for the confusion around HIPAA, the health insurance portability, portability and privacy law. And, you know, the default way that people understand is that we as clinicians can't talk about patients because we're going to get sued and get in trouble. I feel that that actually is not as much of a concern because many of these conversations around healthcare, when they're initiated by patients, they themselves are willing to share their stories. One of the panelists last week at our event was uh, Elizabeth Rosenthal of the New York Times, who has been writing a really um, extraordinary series of articles on the costs of medical care. And she, she told this really interesting story, which is that when they just posted a request on one of their blogs to say, can you please share your stories about paying for medical care? That post was only up for two hours, and yet they were inundated with hundreds of emails with detailed stories, people who were willing to share their experience. And in fact, that served as the basis for the series of articles that, that later became her series. And that, that's been tremendously influential in getting people to think in a very concrete way about the costs of medical care, and by extension, healthcare reform and healthcare delivery reform. 
So I think in that way, social media really does allow people to tell their stories in a way and sort of get their message out. And these are people that may not have been able to be reached any other way. So that's, I think that that's very powerful. And it also, to some extent, lets clinicians communicate with each other. If you're interested in health policy and you're a physician, to be honest, you're a little bit unusual. <laughs> you know, most clinicians are not really interested, but through social media, uh, through these kinds of uh, projects we do, the idea is that you can find other people who are like-minded. Uh, you can create a community, and one of the organizations that did that was Doctors for America. Uh, you know, these are physicians that all found each other uh, through social media. They now play a role in important advocacy around healthcare reform um, uh, for physicians and patients as well. So we feel that, that there is certainly a, a great deal of, of work that being done without necessarily getting into the issues of patient privacy. Well, Dr. Uh, Sangavi, having uh, lived and practiced long enough to actually see health reform come about and uh, <laughs> moving close to universal coverage, I am now convinced anything is possible. And, yeah. that, <laughs> and that means even payment reform just might happen in my lifetime. And you've noted that many clinicians uh, feel kind of left out of the discussions around payment reform. Um, and the Affordable Care Act certainly puts forward new models around the accountable care organizations and bundle payments. But for practicing providers, whether pediatricians as you were, or pediatric surgeons as you were, or primary care providers in private practice, community health centers, the kind of transformation they might be looking for, things that really help them get a handle on the enormous work uh, with uh, that needs to be done, the people to be taken care of without that fee-for-service-driven reimbursement system remains somewhat elusive. Maybe you could share with us uh, your view as the Merkin Fellow for Financial Reform and Clinical Leadership at Brookings. What kind of leadership is going to be needed to help really drive meaningful health payment reform? And what do you see evolving over the next decade or so? When one talks about changing the ways in which we deliver health care, people instinctively worry about that. Uh, they think that health care reform is synonymous with making things cheaper, and making things cheaper means taking things away from people. And I think that because that's the dominant way, I mean, the general population conceives of healthcare reform, they look to clinicians and physicians as their protectors. And so I think that's sort of the, at its heart, the reason that I believe clinicians have a very important part to play in healthcare reform. Not only because they understand how to transform healthcare because they work in it, but they also, to some extent, are some of the most trusted folks by patients and even politicians. And the way we seem to be pursuing now is that it's going to be an incremental approach. And I think probably the one everybody should know about and the one that I feel the most optimistic about is there'll be a permanent repeal of the sustainable growth rate formula for Medicare. As many people may be aware, the ways in which we've stopped Medicare from growing don't make a lot of sense. We do it sort of willy-nilly. There's a 25% cut in Medicare fees to physicians that's been on the books for several years. And this year, for the first time, there's political movement that that might stop. But at the cost, physicians will have to move away from fee-for-service reimbursement and start to now offer me measures of quality and participate in other payment models. So no matter what happens, that sort of ship is leaving the harbor now. And my hope is that physicians, once they realize that, can then take the lead to then reorganize how they organize their practices. If you don't need to worry about seeing somebody in person to get paid, you're going to be creative. You're going to say, well, hey, maybe I'll answer those emails or make those calls. Or better yet, I'll sort of think about how I can use my nurses to really meet the needs of patients in a way we didn't do before. 
And that's sort of the hope is that once they're freed of the perverse economic incentives, their natural impulse to do what's right for patients will shine through. I, I realize that that sounds very sunny and optimistic mm-hmm. and it might all fall apart and <laughs> who knows. But I, but I, I truly believe that that can happen if the, if the payment reform were to happen. Now, the second part, I would say, I mentioned there's incremental, there's a much more radical approach, which is that if you're freed of the conventional fee-for-service, maybe a small number of physicians will say, you know, we should completely change, you know, go to a direct pay model where we essentially um, uh, uh, act like medical homes on steroids. You know, we assume all the kinds of care of patients. We're really going to completely radically redesign care. There'll be a small number of people that may be free to do that as well. And I think that that innovation will be good over time. Uh, We've been speaking today with uh, Dr. Darshak uh, Sanghavi, Managing Director of the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform at the Brookings Institution, where he's also the Merkin Fellow for Finance Reform and Clinical Leadership. You can learn more about his work by following him on Twitter at uh, Darshak uh, Sanghavi and uh, going to uh, or go to brookings.edu. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. It's been a pleasure speaking with you both. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? We're starting to see Democrats in Senate races repeat old and misleading claims about Representative Paul Ryan's Medicare plan. Ryan's proposed budgets in recent years included changing Medicare to a premium support system in which private insurers and traditional Medicare would be offered on a Medicare exchange. Democrats have been attacking the plan for years. And now, in the Arkansas Senate race, ads from Democratic Senator Mark Pryor criticize his Republican challenger, Tom Cotton, for supporting Ryan's plan. Two prior ads claim that seniors would pay thousands more each year under the plan Cotton supported. But the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said the plan could lead to higher costs to beneficiaries without offering any specific estimate. One prior ad says the higher costs would affect every senior in Arkansas, but Ryan's plan wouldn't pertain to those 55 and over, and another plan that Cotton backed wouldn't pertain to those 60 and older. A second ad says the plan would allow insurers to cut benefits, but the plan requires policies sold to seniors to include a minimum level of benefits. Under the Ryan plan, seniors in the future would choose a plan from the Medicare exchange, with a subsidy being sent to the policy of choice. These subsidies would be tied to the full cost of the second cheapest private plan or traditional Medicare, whichever is less. The growth of that second cheapest plan would be capped at GDP plus 0.5%. Critics argue health care costs would grow faster, and eventually beneficiaries would have to pay more out of pocket. But that's speculation. If recent history is any guide, we'll see more of these claims in 2014 races. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Dieting is a numbers game, but as anyone with midriff bulge knows, it's hard to win a game of losing. But researchers at Miriam Hospital in Rhode Island have found a fun interactive tool that could help improve the odds of dieters seeking to shed pounds. Dr. Tricia Leahy is the lead researcher at Merriam Hospital's Weight Control and Diabetes Research Center. They wanted to see if the introduction of social media, gaming, and placing a bet on one's own weight loss would have an impact on dieter success. So they looked at the weight loss social media site, Diet Bet. Participants engaged in a four-week weight loss challenge. Everybody has four weeks to lose 4% of their initial body weight. And in the very beginning of the program, before the game begins, you can bet however much money you want, and um, all of their bets get pooled. And then those folks who lose at least 4% of their initial body weight in four weeks then get to split the pot of money that was bet at game start. And during the game, they interact with one another via social media platform. Dr. Leahy says they were also encouraged by the success of participants in the diet bet study. So on average, using this conservative approach, folks lost about 2.5% of their initial body weight. And that's in just four weeks. And that's actually, you know, quite good. And those folks who actually lost the 4% and won the game and were allowed to split the pot of money lost about 4.5-5% of their initial body weight, which is actually comparable and better than some of our evidence-based programs. She says they were so encouraged by the success of the participants in the Diet Bet study, they are expanding their research to include more participants with longer-term experiments. The company has a follow-up to Diet Bet, Diet Better which engages participants in a six-month diet goal on the social media site. You know, I think it kind of makes weight loss more fun. People are interacting with one another, sometimes ribbing each other, you know, and then there's a little bit of money on the line. So I just, I think that it probably increased uh, folks' motivation. Diet Bet, an online social media site that encourages dieters to bet on their own diet success, winning both cash prizes and a healthier body mass index. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.